Today's episode is brought to you by trainedup.church. Trained Up is one of those services that I wish had existed when I was working in college campus ministry because one of the best and worst parts about campus ministry is that you're constantly raising up leaders and sending them out into the world when they graduate. It means you always have a need to recruit and train new leaders and volunteers all the time. And I know this isn't a problem exclusive to campus ministry. This is where Trained Up comes in. It's a flexible and powerful online video course platform that gives you the chance to capture training once and then deliver it to an unlimited number of volunteers at their convenience. Trained Up has an extensive library of pre-filmed training videos and courses you can share with your team. But even more importantly, they give you the ability to film and upload your own training videos and courses to ensure that the language, concepts, and details are right for your ministry. You can even add a quiz at the end to make sure people are paying attention while they watch. It can be as simple as using your own computer's webcam or the camera on your phone. But if video isn't your thing, you can also hire the production team at Trained Up to create professional quality videos using your content. Check out Trained Up today by heading over to trainedup.church. Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Root. He's the Olson Balson Associate Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's also the author of multiple books, including the new one that I absolutely loved called The Grace of Dogs. Andy joins us today to talk about his book, as well as the challenge of being a theologically minded person writing a mass market book, not unlike the challenge we face when we step into the pulpit every week. Well, my guest today is Dr. Andrew Root. He's the Olson Balson Associate Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, would you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Yeah, so um, where I'm located ministry-wise is I uh, teach at Luther Seminary and here in the upper Midwest, as we say, or if you're a sports fan, we call it Loserville, USA, because we don't. (laughs) We don't win at anything, um, and it's an incredible pain to be a Vikings fan. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've been here at Luther for—this is my 13th academic year, the wow. beginning of it, so 12 full years, and I have two kids uh, that uh, play in this book that we're going to be talking about, and then my wife is a pastor, so she, every week, is uh, mounting the pulpit to, to preach. So I am not a preacher, but live near one and um, see that task uh really at first hand. You specialize in youth and family ministry. What kind of settings do that, does that usually bring you into? Uh, what kind of topics are you usually dealing with on a day-in, day-out basis? Yeah, I mean, I work a lot with youth workers or MA and MDiv students who are going to focus on on some kind of uh, youth ministry or, or children's ministry field. But I really do see myself as a practical theologian and have uh, spent all this time really thinking about larger theological issues through kind of the lens of younger people, because I think there's a lot of freedom to ask kind of deep theological questions, uh, deep cultural questions that uh, that really get into who God is and how God acts and moves within our world uh, through, through younger generations of people. So, um, yeah, I really see myself as a theologian trying to talk about how concretely people encounter the presence of God, and have found the most freedom doing that within... Uh, youth ministry. and think there's just a lot to ministry that's uh, quite beautiful that needs to be talked about theologically more. So, uh, yeah, that's where, kinda, where I kind of rest. I really enjoy the cultural elements of youth ministry, but it's also allowed a lot of latitude to, to try to do theological projects in a way that gets, gets down on the ground a little bit, or at least to people's experience. 
Well, one of our first questions for all of our guests are about your philosophies or approaches to preaching or communication in general. If you had a mission statement or a guiding principle for yourself, what might it be? Um, you know what? <laughs> this is going to sound really weird. I, I really, especially, I mean, I don't preach as much. I probably preach ooh, maybe four to eight times a year. And I have to be quite honest and, um, hopefully your, your listeners won't turn me off now, but I have the hardest time preaching. And it's basically because I was trained as being a manuscript preacher mm. and I just feel a distance from people. But when I lecture, um, particularly to the group of pastors or whatever, I feel much more engaged and, um, and I, I in, in, my fantasy is to be a stand-up comic. But I think if I had a philosophy, it's just really trying to find ways of connecting with people through narrative and through story and um, and making really – I'm trying. I mean my, my own mission is trying to make quite complicated either scientific or theological concepts – uh, encase them in enough narrative that they, that people can feel their way into them. Because I just have the sense that theology is done more through narrative and through these kind of um, emotive experience than it is kind of through an intellectual process. So I guess mine would be trying to lace in humor and narrative and story within that. And I'm just trying to explore how the stand-up comic becomes at least a paradigm for um, the speaker, for the lecturer, if we have to take more of that that shape. So for me, it's been, you know, trying to, to lecture more like from a posted note than from, a, from, you know, uh, 15 pages of, of manuscript points. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to lean into that. I don't know how well it's going, but that's, that's been kind of my philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll ask you a little bit later about the process of writing the book that we're, we're here to talk about the grace of dogs, but that was one of the reasons why I ended up deciding that you would be such a great guest to have on the program, because this is really the challenge that all of us face when we step into the pulpit, whether we're doing it four times a year or whether we're doing it 40 times a year, uh, we're, we're trying to take the, the theological grounding that we've been given, the education that we have, all the commentaries that we're reading or theoretically reading or just what we're reading on textweek.com on Friday and Saturday. We're trying to take all of this and make it translatable to get it to fit on the post-it note because that's really what folks are going to end up taking home with them. And so uh, I'm really excited to hear about how this was a challenge for you and, and how you do this in your work. But let's begin by asking about the inspiration for this particular book. Um, the Grace of Dogs stands out on your bibliography <laughs> when you compare it to all the other things that you've written. So why don't you tell us what makes this book different? Oh, man, it's different. I mean, it is like when you look at my CV, it's one of these books does not belong with the others. And and this is totally it. Like I hadn't cut my teeth writing on Francis of Assisi or, you know, the ethical treatment of animals or anything. <laughs> I never had written anything like this. But, you know, like most people out there listening, we had a dog that we loved and we had this black lab um, that we named Kirby because I've already referenced being a Minnesota sports fan. And yeah. the o only time we won anything was when Kirby Puckett was in center field. Right. So he became uh, my boyhood hero. And we had this lovable dog, got them my first year of my Ph.D. program at, at Princeton. No kids just went to get milk one one night and ended up at a pet store. And next thing we knew, we had this black lab that we were taking home. It was most the most extravagant impulse buy I've ever had. Yeah. And um, we fell in love with him. And then both of our kids came into our life and the dog became more of the kids than ours. And uh, he was just, he was really the center of our family and, and, and so important to us in, in so many ways. 
And then uh, a few years ago now, he is middle of the summer and he started kind of limping and things didn't look very well. And he started sleeping in places he rarely slept before, cold bathroom floor particularly. And my wife, Cara, and I had a, a debate on whether he needed to go to the vet. And she decided she'd take him in, but she was sure that everything would be just fine and that he would get a pill or he'd get checked up and he'd be in the backyard chasing a tennis ball soon enough. But she took him to the vet alone and... Uh, Really early on after in the examination room, the vet said, I'm sorry, there's a huge mass in his stomach mm-hmm. and this is the end. This is going to be it. And so she left the dog there because he couldn't be moved on the vet's recommendation. And she drove home, picked up both my kids who were five and eight at the time and picked me up. And we went to say our goodbyes to Kirby. And when we got back into that examining room, my kids just lost it. I mean, the tears just were flowing and, and they're flowing for us too. Um, as, as we just thought about this was the end for Kirby. And when I saw his back leg, which already was shaved to receive the injection that would take his life. I mean, the tears just came and my kids just threw their bodies on him and, and just, um, cried out for him. And then the vet came in and injected him. And in the midst of injecting him, Owen, the eight-year-old, somehow gained the strength and he laid down on the floor with the dog and he put his nose next to the dog's nose and said, the last thing Kirby's going to see is my face. And then we watched it. We just watched the life leave this dog and we grieved hard. And now the tears really came for all of us, particularly for the kids, to such an extent that the dog's snout was now wet with the kid's tears. And in the middle of this, out of his own volition, Owen, the eight-year-old, stood up and said, I'll be right back and went out into the waiting room and came back with a Dixie cup of water, came into the room, put his finger in the Dixie cup of water and uh, took it out and made the sign of the cross on the dog's head and then lifted his hands to heaven in prayer and gave God back this dog. Mm. And so uh, that experience was just so profound for me. Um, and it led me to ask this question, like, what's going on here? I mean, these this dog meant so much to us. The grief that I felt losing him was just, I knew it would hurt to lose my dog, but the anger, the, I mean, it was just, I mean, this sounds weird, but it was just like real deep grief that I felt. And so the book is really just a journey to figure out what is it about these animals. So it's an over-intellectualized father trying to figure out how to explain to his kids what dogs do for us, why we love them so much, and and if it was right, if that what Owen did, that kind of liturgical act – actually witnessed to something that was really profound in the universe, that these dogs are um, a gift of God, that they do something for us that was really significant for our humanity that we need. Um, so that's really the kind of, that's what led me into it. And that's really what the book is about. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you tell that story in chapter one. And, and of course, my copy is now tear stained at the end of chapter one, because you, you just, you, you, like you said, you, you tell it, through a narrative and you set this picture and, and if you're driving right now listening to the podcast and you're crying maybe it's a good idea to pull over and, and pull yourself together uh, but then the the book launches from that point on into this exploration without obviously giving away the whole book can you talk a little bit about why you as well as lots of scientists and even a few theologians throughout history feel that dogs are so unique yeah I mean it's been really interesting because for a lot of years at least in the, in the sciences that dogs were not something that you would study you know it was almost like too familiar it was like you know trying to read a doctoral dissertation on, I don't know, um, wallpaper or the <laughs> toilet or something. I mean, like, why would you study something that's just there? And so dogs were overlooked for a lot of years, even as the science has kind of developed the sense that, that animals weren't just these furry machines, that there was something really unique about them, that they had, they had thought worlds, um, that were pretty unique, that no one really looked at the dog very much. But just in the last decade and a half, a lot of sciences, scientists have turned to look at dogs and realize just how incredibly unique they are and 
why even over the philosophical tradition and theological tradition, we've been really connected to our dogs because they do something really unique for us. And for me, what was really fascinating is a lot of my theological work has, has tried to explore the power of relationship and how significant relationship is for us and how even relationship mediates the presence of God, particularly human relationships to human relationships. So this kind of sense of being ministered to by another, someone sharing in the depth of our experience brings us really near um, to the living presence of, of, of Jesus Christ. And so I came into it with that lens and then was just shocked looking at the science that dogs are really the only animal that is intuitively connected to our faces. Yeah. That there's just... Um, they just uniquely look at our faces. They they soak up our communication, um, and there's just a lot of science. This particular this man named Michael Tamaselio is like a very falutin, well known, really well respected scientist who's been looking for the evolutionary origins of of language, and he really shows that great apes, chimpanzees, they can't read gestures. They don't. They're not attracted to each other's faces. They're surely not attracted to human faces, but that seven to eight week old puppies can do this. That yeah. they can read human gestures. That they that they can tell what we're looking at. That they can read the emotion of of our um, of our voices. And I just think that 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 does something really profoundly spiritual to us. That's something that echoes the depth of our humanity, um, that dogs connect us, connect to us in this really personal way, this face-to-face way, this way of kind of deep communication and kind of indwelling our communication, of, of reading our mind in, in a really significant way. I mean, anyone who's made dinner um, or eaten dinner next to a dog and had it sit, at, <laughs> sit and beg for food, I mean, really what it's doing is it's doing a theory of mind on you and reading your mind and basically yeah. saying, you know, give me some of that chicken. And, um, you know, that's manipulative at one level, but at another level, it shows this incredible capacity of of dogs to, to join in what's really core to our humanity, the need for interconnection and communication and and love. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it was really quite a unique journey for me. When I joked with my wife, when I finished, uh, the book that you have ruined my cat for me, that, uh, <laughs> well, I've, I now notice that when I walk into the room, the dog looks me in the eye, we make eye contact and her tail starts going, you know, even if she is dead tired from being outside and it's hot, her tail starts going, I walk in and, and my cat immediately looks, looks at my hands cause she wants to know what I have for her or what I'm going to do to her. So thank you so much for ruining my cat for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sorry about that. Yeah, there's been so many jokes about how my next book needs to be, you know, all dogs or all cats go to hell or something like that. You know, <laughs> so this book has really brought out the dog lovers in the world, and it's uh, led to a further division in our culture between uh, dog people and cat people. But uh, I have nothing to say about cats. Maybe someone can write a great cat theology book, but it, it definitely won't be me. Yeah. Well, you do focus in the book on the connection between dogs and your children, uh, but also dogs and children in general. Uh, as a professor who specializes in youth and family ministry, do you have any ideas why this connection is so inherently strong? Why, why dogs are attracted to little kids and why little kids love dogs? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it has something to do with that. Little kids have sticky hands and they uh, <laughs> give food pretty easily. I mean, I I don't I don't want to be so naive or so romantic yeah. to, to deny some of that. But I mean, I really some of the stuff that these scientists are saying is that dogs, in many ways, function. Um, kind of even cognitively at, at a toddler level. And they've even done, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, this this uh, um, strange person test that they do to look at attachment connections. Mm. Um, and dogs function a lot like toddlers in that. So I think that it's, I think children who have, I think a, a, 
a more extended consciousness and a more sophisticated cognitive uh, capacities. Obviously, there's something <laughs> there's something about these dogs that kind of they they it's easy for them to see them as friends. Yeah, and and then I think that the dog just. The dog is so attuned to emotion and functions out of emotion more than rationality, and so do children, um, that there's just a way, I think, and this sounds odd, but there's just a way that a good dog is able to minister to a child and just be there for the child. And I have just such ref- uh, such memories of Kirby when, when Maisie, my youngest, was so scared of going to kindergarten and every morning worried about what it was going to be like and then you know a weekend worried that she wasn't going to be able to do it this week and how Kirby would sit with her and just give her his body and for her to, to cuddle and then would lick her face. And I don't know, there's just I think there's just a deep kind of similar attachment kind of mechanism that's going on there mm-hmm. that really connects with them. And I think both both children and dogs kind of meet the world as spiritual beings. Uh, and by that, I mean really looking for interconnection and looking for kind of a depth of being known and belonging. And I think there's just something really similar to that. I, I you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be too grandiose about sure, this, but, sure. you know, ri- writing this book, it just felt like, you know, every kid needs a dog. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I probably more than any other of my ministry or my writing, I've probably converted more people in this book than any other. I haven't quite <laughs> converted them to be church members or to confess the, the, the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but I've, con- I've convinced some to be dog owners. So, uh, I've had friends who've, uh, who weren't, weren't wanting to be dog people who now have become dog people because of the book and trying to, and recognizing that they need their, that they want their kids to have a dog. And, uh, yeah, so I think there's something unique. There's more to be said there, but I think there's a connection. And I've noticed too, and I mean, I've I've read about it and seen examples of it. But dogs can also pick up on like women who are pregnant, and and some yeah. of it may be the hormones, and the dog may not be you know consciously processing. Oh, there's a little human being in there to protect. But we had some friends pass through town, uh, and the wife of the family was pregnant, and. Our dog ended up sleeping on the bed with them in the guest room, uh, which thankfully they were fine with. But it's just like my dog seemed to inherently know that there was something different and and that she needed to be there to kind of guard and protect. And it was just really such a unique thing because she, you know, she sleeps with us every night. But this one particular night, she slept with total strangers, uh, uh, curled up in the crook of the knee of of the woman who was pregnant. It was it was amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, and one of the stories I use in the book is with Kirby when we when we uh, brought Owen home from the the hospital that um, for the first week or so he didn't he could care less. Um, <laughs> And it was mainly because th- that Owen had this big scented disposable diaper on. Yeah. And one night we put him down for tummy time, as we called it, um, or maybe some baby book told us to call it. And he was just down there, and, and Kirby came up in total inspection mode as a lab will, you know, with his his uh, left paw up and his kind of yeah. pointing and smelled Owen's bottom. And it like you could almost see the dog, it clicked that this was a human being, wow. and he knew exactly what to do for a human being. And he raced, found a tennis ball, and dropped it at the oh. infant's <laughs> at the infant's hand. Like, okay, I know who you are. But from that moment on, Kirby slept every night with Owen, and wow. and so it's just a really unique kind of a deep spiritual reality that that a good dog knows what to do for a human being. It doesn't need to be taught. It doesn't need to be trained. And it's amazing how well we can train them to do incredible things for us. Um, but that they just, they can be trained because they're just so intuitively drawn to us and they so deeply want to be with us, which goes back to your, your dog, even, even when he's exhausted and doesn't really 
you know, want to play, he sees you and the tail goes. That yeah. Dogs are just uh, in many ways addicted to human beings, which is quite a beautiful thing. Sure. Well, how did you come up with the name of the book, The Grace of Dogs? How did you make this connection between this, this big theological concept of grace and why did you apply it to dogs? Yeah, it could be a little bit problematic. Maybe I'm, I'm stretching it a little bit. Um, uh, it actually wasn't me. My, uh, my literary agent came up with it, who she's brilliant. So it was, uh, she, she, as she was reading drafts and, and I'm sure we'll get into this kicking my butt for them not <laughs> being able to, to connect, connect or being too kind of, uh, academic Um, she, she had the idea. She said, I see what you're really saying here is that there's grace involved. And so I started to write from that theme a little bit and I just do think it's grace. I mean, that the, the way I've talked about it with people is that there's just something really unique about having this kind of animal that we've been talking about that reads your gestures, that wants to be with you, that gives you rituals, like taking them for a walk. And it's amazing how dogs know time. It's like between between 3.30 and 4.30, my dog needs to go out and yeah. she's ready to go to the park. And that the, these dogs do all this, but that they just, you know, back to being addicted to being with us, they just want to be with us. And that your dog loves you and thinks you're great. And it has no sense if you're the CEO or if you got promoted or how big your churches, um, or how many degrees you have, or it doesn't know, it doesn't care about any of those things. It just, it just wants to be with you. And so the grace element for me is just this, that dogs don't count. Um, you know, they don't count your, your bank account or how many degrees you have. Dogs just think that you're pretty spectacular and just want to, want to be with you. And, and that's a real grace, particularly in our kind of cultural time. It's a real grace to have these beings that just, um, remind us again and again that we're human beings and being a human being, um, is beautiful in and of itself. And if that's all dogs do for us is remind us that there's something sacredly beautiful about being human, that's an incredible gift from God. And we should celebrate that. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think it's a great title for the book. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, that, that I, uh, was struggling with how to phrase we do live in a world, especially right now, even, even much more than a month or two ago, when I read the book and wrote these questions, we live in a world of division. There's so much animosity. There's so much anger. There's so much even blatant racism and forms of prejudice that that just work to break down our connections with fellow human beings. But at the same time, there's almost a universal connection to dogs and dogs have this power over us. You tell a story in the book about a a dog that was brought to a gate full of angry airline passengers. And yet when the dog came through, it sort of lightened the mood and lessened the stress and released some of the anger and the anxiety. And if I'm being completely honest, uh, I have gotten good at faking the phone call or, or staring off into space like, I'm thinking when there's a homeless person standing next to my car asking for help, but if they have a dog with them, I am much more likely to help them out. Um, and, and it says that's a terrible thing for me as a human being to say that I lack compassion for the human being, but I care about the dog. What do you think it is about dogs that help us restore empathy and compassion when we fail to have it for our fellow humans? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I guess I, I probably um, risk being romantic again, but I think there's something, especially your analogy uh, of the homeless person with the dog, is that I think part of what a dog's job is is to echo, to 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 kind of speak out to the world that this is a human being. And I think in this really odd way, and like you're saying, it's kind of warped, but in another level really beautiful, is that when we see someone with a dog, we're reminded that that person isn't an object, that that's a that there's a person there, that there's yeah. a person who engages at a deep level of attachment. And so I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it would be an interesting study. I, I'm not sure that when we see a homeless person with a dog that we're, 
really attracted to the dog as much as through the dog that the dog almost becomes the preacher that heralds here is a beautiful human being. Mm. Um, and you always trust dogs to witness to human beings. It's like kind of echoing, remember that the Bill Murray tweet, one of the greatest tweets of all time where Bill Murray said, um, I never trust a person who doesn't like a dog, but I always <laughs> trust a dog who doesn't like a person. Yeah. You know, there's so, there's something where we kind of see dogs as these great readers of human beings and these great almost ethicists. Yeah. And I think when we see a dog, that we the dog is almost a preacher for a human being saying, remember that this is a beautiful person. And one of the stories I, I draw from in, in the book is the Emmanuel Levinas story, which Emmanuel Levinas is this incredibly dense um, post-structuralist philosopher, French philosopher who died at the end of the 20th century, but was in a prisoner of war camp in uh, in France. And basically, he never writes kind of biographically, but this is one essay he does, and it's called something really – it's a weird title. It's like called Natural Law or – or, um, uh, or the face of the dog or something like that. Mm. And so he, he goes biographical and he talks about being this prisoner of war camp and how they would get up every day and have to work and that even the townspeople treated them like objects and that they had kind of lost their humanity and the oppression of this. But he says for two weeks, a dog would run out of the woods when they would come back to their barracks and the dog would run out of the woods and jump up and be excited to see them and tag would away its tail. And he says this beautiful line where he says, that dog witnessed that indeed we were still human beings. Mm. That the dog that the dog's happiness reminded them that they were still human beings and he says what do you do with a, a dog who does this you you a special dog you name it so we named him Bobby and Bobby witnessed to us for two weeks that we that we were indeed human and then like a good Jewish rabbi he goes on a midrash and talks about the Exodus text. And in the Exodus text, uh, Moses says to the Israelites that you'll know it's God who is liberating you because not a dog of Egypt will bark. Mm. And something only a Jewish rabbi can do um, <laughs> says, you know, it says uh, who those dogs are. Those are the righteous dogs of Egypt that mm. participate in the freedom of humanity. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I just wonder if, you know, what happens there is that we're seeing that dog and that dog is a righteous dog of Egypt that participates in liberating humanity to remember that they're human and they do something to us when we see that dog, you know, in the theme of your, your podcast that in some ways dogs become preachers for humanity, um, uh, maybe not preaching the depth of the gospel, but pre but reminding us that uh, there's something sacred and beautiful about uh, being human. Absolutely. That is so great. And and all y'all, you now have a whole sermon's worth of illustrations and concepts to chew over. So uh, y'all make sure you get a copy of this book and uh, share it with your congregations. But let's go ahead and start to talk about the writing of the book. Because even if you aren't going to end up uh, in a pulpit somewhere talking about the grace of dogs, you, you do struggle with this challenge of taking um, academic theology or these sort of dense concepts and making them approachable. This, like you said, is such a different book than you were used to writing. What, uh, what, what was this experience like and why was it such a challenge? Uh, it was a living hell to be, to be honest. No, I mean, it was, it was great and I learned a lot, but it wasn't easy. Um, when I had the idea, I knew that if I was going to do it, that I, I wanted to try to write a, a large market book. And most of my books had been kind of, um, either, or either academic theology or kind of ministry kind of for pastors, for youth pastors kind of thing. And, yeah. um, I wanted this book to be something that people in my neighborhood would read. I mean, whenever anyone had asked me what kind of, you know, if they should read in my neighborhood, if they were my kid's friends parents, if they should read one of my books, I always was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, like I always felt really weird about it. Like you're not going to find anything I'm writing very interesting yeah. unless you're like a professional church person. Yeah. Um, but this, so I wanted to write this book in a way that could connect to my, you know, my kids' 
uh, parents who were on my kid's swim team, you know, and, um, it was hard. I, I wrote a draft, sent it to, I luckily had this literary agent that I was working with and sent it to her. And she, I, I basically had to rewrite it three times. And I finally had the breakthrough, which has, has been kind of revolutionary for me is that the way at least I was trained to, to write was that I'm trying throughout the book to prove a point to the reader mm. and almost, almost wrestle the reader down into submission. You know, chapter one <laughs> yeah. starts to build the point, And by chapter six, seven, eight, I've wrestled you down and you now concede that I'm right. So I want you to turn every page and say, oh, you're right. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, now I see from this angle, you're right. And I realized that that's not how you can write for a broad audience, that how I needed to write this book is that I needed the reader to turn the page and go, oh, that's cool. Or, oh, I knew that. Now I have language for it, that it needed to be more of a discovery um, than a kind of uh, than, than almost an intellectual uh, uh, transfusion or something. And that took a lot of work. It took a lot of work for me to get out of um, kind of trying to convince the reader. I mean, it took me so much work that I actually wrote another book that's just more a straight academic argument while writing this one because <laughs> it was just so frustrating writing this one. Yeah. So, you know, trying to write for a broad audience, doing what preachers do every week, which is trying to connect these really um, beautiful, mystical, deep ideas with people um, uh, sitting in, in in pews who are just living their lives day to day, it's it's incredibly hard work. I mean, for me to write this, this was much harder than ever writing my dissertation was. I mean, it was um, it was just a it was a real real difficult thing, but it was beautiful, and I think I learned a lot um, along the way. Did it help to write that parallel piece in more the style you were comfortable with? Did it help to sort of get that out on paper and then you knew that existed somewhere even if no one ever ends up reading it? Yeah, it was probably it was probably uh, more important for me just existentially maybe, yeah. uh, to, you know, to kind of work that out. And um, it, yeah, it's interesting because that, that book is actually just about to release. And when people hear this, it will be out too. It's called Faith Formation in a Secular Age, which is kind of more of a philosophical, theological book. Um, and it, it does. I read it now, and, and I think it's a good book, and I think it's a good argument, but it really is an argument. And I've worked on a couple things since those two books have been out. And in writing this uh, this dog book, The Grace of Dogs, has changed the way I've written, where I just really do realize that I have to front narratives more and to mm-hmm. get into ideas through narratives. And, and even if I'm going to present a an idea that just doesn't have a real narrative shape to it. We need to get into it with a little narrative, however however that plays, even if it's just kind of a little narrative bridge to get into it. So I think I've become more convinced all the way back to the beginning of this podcast that that narrative is just just incredibly important. And to get these larger theological ideas across to people, we, just, we need to become better storytellers. Um, and uh, whether that's using a little humor here or there or, or another kind of narrative or helping people um, get a little biographical background on the thinker that you're you're wrestling with. Um, I think becomes pretty important. That's absolutely so true. That is so true. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests, and the first one is: What is one of your favorite or most challenging uh, communication experiences? Oh man, yeah. So maybe this goes back to my philosophy about communication. I was at a big uh, youth worker convention, and um, the first thing I learned is you have to be really careful on what you tell them you're gonna you're gonna talk about. <laughs> and for some reason, I had two presentations that were really similar to each other in title. So I decided I couldn't. 
I couldn't really do the same thing twice, which I've now learned that you just do your best stuff no matter what the title is. Yeah. But um, I, I, so I decided I better write something different. And so I wrote something different for this, this other presentation, but I wasn't really connected to it. And I ended up more reading my notes to a group of, you know, youth, youth workers and pastors. Mm. And, and, the, and it was just one of those experiences where the room started with, you know, 70 people in it. And then it was a big conference. So there was, you know, another dozen other, uh, uh, workshops going on so people could choose. And it was like six, seven, eight minutes in, people were deciding with their feet, they're going to go to another one. And yeah. you know, it's like when you're in the middle of a presentation or a lecture, or even a sermon, you, it's very hard to stop midway through, you know, it's like trying to stop a sneeze midway through or something. You can't really do it. Yeah. And so I was just so aware that people were streaming out of the room and I was on a sinking ship. And so, um, yeah. So that led me back to like, I cannot be connected to my notes. I, the, the point is to really be engaged and have a, a mutual learning experience with the people in the room and not just make sure my content is really well organized. And I've said the words exactly how I want them to. So <laughs> I, I still am haunted by watching people stream out of the look at their watches and then stream out of the room. So that was a real challenging one. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, this next question is uh, usually for folks who preach on a regular basis, but I still think it'll be interesting. Do you have a preference between Christmas Eve or Easter? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I am an, I'm an Easter, <laughs> Easter guy, but I'm, I guess I'm an Advent guy. I've worked a lot with kind of Luther's theology of the cross and, and, uh, do kind of imagine, well, I do think kind of a reading of Paul that I find quite powerful is that Paul sees this kind of sense of, uh, this risen Christ coming to us through our death experience. And in, and when we participate in kind of articulating and even narrating our, our experiences of, of death, um, our experiences of rejection, of loss, of, of fear that we find the presence of Jesus Christ through our, our ministry to and for each other. So I'm, uh, so you can see like, uh, um, good Friday and Advent are, uh, kind of my jam a little bit. I, I, I get in, into those. So, um, one, I, a sermon I preached not too long ago, I preached at my friend's, um, uh, he became president of a seminary, so it was at his service to be um, installed, and it was an Advent service, and uh, I think the first line of it was something like confusion and despair. It was all around <laughs> around the text of um, Mary and um, Elizabeth and, and the kind of sense of being, what are these children doing within us, and the confusion of that experience. And so uh, I just kept hitting the refrain, um, yeah, confusion and despair. So I'm a kind of confusion and despair <laughs> kind of guy that's... That's kind of, uh, yeah. So well, Advent, Advent and Good Friday are for me. There you go. And I have to say, too, I live in the southeastern United States. I grew up in Florida. I now live in Georgia. And you're up in St. Paul. And I, I think that you all have a little bit of a natural advantage with the with the weather, I guess. Uh, when it hits Advent, the days are noticeably shorter. And while I don't envy the snow or the you know freezing and below freezing temperatures that you go through, I think perhaps nature sets the scene a little bit easier for you all uh we're down in florida we're still you'll, there will literally be people in shorts and flip-flops at our christmas eve services yeah that's a little crazy and i guess it is you know like similarly carl bart always said about uh soren kierkegaard's philosophy that he, it was uh the reason it's the way it is is because he was in uh denmark so he's the <laughs> he's the melancholy dane and so i think even up here in the upper midwest we we can be a little melancholy which leads us to 
to like those texts and, and those uh, times in the liturgical calendar. Yeah, let's celebrate my friend with confusion and despair. So <laughs> That's right, yeah, yes. Welcome to his presidency, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life? You said you really admire stand-up co- uh, comics, which is a very common thing amongst preachers uh, and church communicators. So maybe tell us some of your favorite uh, preachers or theologians, but then also make sure to let us know who some of your favorite comedians are. Yeah, well, it's starting with comedians. I mean, it's hard not to be a Louis C.K. guy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm I really like Louis C.K. stuff. Um, preachers, uh, yeah. I mean, I have to say, my wife is, is I think, is <laughs> a, a very talented <laughs> preacher. If she's listening, I that's what. Yeah, that's the right thing to say. Um, but you know, I I've uh, done a lot of work with Bonhoeffer and reading Bonhoeffer sermons. I I find really engaging. I find them really to be quite relevant, even you know now what, 70, 80 years old. I mean, Bonhoeffer's desire to kind of avoid being trapped in, in political and ideological um, uh, uh, kind of cul-de-sacs is really fascinating to me. So, and, and yet he wants to really proclaim the gospel um, without, uh, kind of, and, and make it in a culturally relevant way, in a way that leads to engagement and action, but also then doesn't find itself uh, linked on to some kind of political um, ideology. I find that really, really insightful and unique. So, um, yeah, I guess I would go there. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of a Bonhoeffer guy. That's good. Well, what books, podcasts, or other resources might you recommend for our audience? Yeah. um, Well, I mean, I I guess what I I tell my own students is um, I – I, I, it feels to me like a preacher particularly has to have someone that they journey with, a dialogue partner. Mm. And that dialogue partner can change over time. But it, I've, I've, I just kind of feel like, especially around a text and around a community, that it always helps to have a dialogue partner or two. And I've had many in, in, in my life. Um, but I guess that's one thing I, I would encourage. If I was going to give specifics on um, like what's worth reading right now, um, I'm – I'm really into the philosopher Charles Taylor right now. I mean, that's a reference to these other books that are coming out. They're um, really thinking about what it means to live in a secular age and how it becomes really much more difficult for people to to imagine kind of divine action or God's presence in their life in, in this kind of uh, secular age. So I would really recommend um, some of Charles Taylor stuff just kind of understanding the challenges that we face. And then a theologian that I've been really into who just passed away is Robert Jensen, um, who, who just died. He has a really nice book called An Outline to Theology, I think it's called, Can These Bones Live? Something like that. Mm. It's a really nice little helpful book that's really rich theologically, but really readable. It was actually um, lectures he gave at, at Princeton University um, just a few years ago. And um, it's really worth reading. And Jensen is a, just a really unique guy. Yeah. So I guess I would. I, that's at least what's kind of bouncing around in my head right now. Great. And, and finally, if folks want to get in touch and say hi or follow your work, what's the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, probably the best way to do it is uh, um, you can you can find me on the internet. Um, I have a website, just andrewroot.org, but I'm on Twitter as well, which is rootandrew um, is my handle on Twitter. That's a good way, but email me. Um, you can email me. Uh, if you just Google me, you'll find my, my Luther Sem, um, uh, Seminary email, and uh, that would be a great way to, to connect with me. So, yeah, look forward to that. Awesome. Great. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Hey, it was great. Thanks. 
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.